Lord's Day 18 is where we left off. So we talked about, we covered, I think, questions 46, 47, 48. We did not touch on 49. Is that correct? Okay, I'm convinced. Um, and then I think we can probably go right into Lord's Day 19. They're so closely tied. So remember, the Heidelberg Catechism, um, maybe just a quick review here, and for those who don't know or maybe visiting with us today, Heidelberg Catechism, written in 1563, wonderful summary of the Christian faith. Don't be afraid of the word catechism. It, just, it comes from the Greek word katecheo, which means to teach. So it's just a teaching tool in question and answer format. And the Heidelberg, and Protestants were actually the first to begin publishing catechisms. It was the Counter-Reformation that responded to that. Anyway, the Heidelberg Catechism, if you remember, questions uh, one and two is the intro. And then <clears throat> questions three through 11, we call that the guilt section because it, it, it exposits God's law, right? Shows us our sin. We can't know the good news unless we hear the bad news. The bad news is that we're sinful. God's law is not bad. God's law is good, but it exposes our badness, our evil. When it shows us his standard, as Jesus summarized in Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That's God's standard. That's why we're made, and we have failed to do it. So it shows us that we're guilty before God. You can't be good enough for God. So what's the good news? That's in questions 12 through 85, that we are saved by God's grace. This is gospel. So law and gospel are two different things. We don't want to confuse the two. They're both good, but they function differently. God's law reveals God's righteousness, and it shows us that we're guilty. God's gospel announces the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. The, the righteousness that God demands from us, he also provides to us in Jesus Christ, which is why we love Christ, why we love God, because he loved us first and he has saved us. Then we'll get into questions later, uh, 86 through 129, and that's how we live in gratitude. And this section goes through the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. Because prayer is the chief part of our gratitude. This section goes through the Apostles' Creed. Now this follows a similar pattern to Paul's letter to the Romans. He has an introduction in chapter 1, then from chapter 1 to chapter 3, shows how we're all guilty before God, because, and the law reveals that. Then from chapter 3 through chapter 11, God's grace to us in Christ, and then chapters 12 through 16, how we're living gratitude. So right now we're in this section and the exposition of the Apostles' Creed. And we get to that one part where we confess he ascended into heaven. And uh, we covered questions 46, 47, 48. <clears throat> Let's talk briefly about question 49. Okay. So question 49, how does Christ's ascension into heaven benefit us? Numbers. 
his spirit to us on earth as a further guarantee the spirit's power being the goal of our lives not earthly things but the things above where Christ is sitting at the right, right hand okay so let's talk about this a little bit and let's see uh, what questions you have um, last week we talked a bit about uh, the book of Hebrews and how the writer to the Hebrews connects Christ's ascension to the high priesthood in the Old Testament and how Christ has fulfilled those very things. And so, just as the high priest would walk through in, into the tent, remember the tabernacle is this big tent, only the priest could go inside, goes inside the tent, and he passes through the courtyard. We have all the animals being sacrificed, uh, the altar of burnt offering, the huge basin where you would be washed ceremonially. ceremonially. You walk into the tent. Only the priest could be there. You've got the table of showbread, the lampstand, the altar of incense, and then behind that is the great curtain. And the great curtain is the separation symbolically, uh, between God's holiness and the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was and sinful man. And only the high priest could go pass through the curtain. And he was essentially a type of Christ. Uh, the, the curtain is symbolic going all the way back to the beginning of redemptive history when God puts out our first parents from the Holy Garden, and so now they are exiled, they're separated from God's holiness. They can't have fellowship with this holy God uh, apart from mediation because they're sinners. And do you remember what they put, what God put uh, between Adam and Eve and the tree of life? Yeah, a sword, a flaming sword, and cherubim. Okay, cherubim, these mighty angels. And what was carved, in, or what was uh, embroidered into the, uh, the uh, curtain in, in the most holy place, but flames and cherubim. And so it, it repeats itself again and again. And, uh, but the, the point is, is that just as the high, you wanted the high priest to go into that place, to offer blood on the mercy seat to God, for the atonement of God's people on the Day of Atonement. So all of this is mapped out in the book of Leviticus you know, by God himself. Uh, he's going to pass through the, 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 uh, the holy place into the most holy place, into the presence of God, and there present the blood for acceptance on behalf of the people. All symbolic of what Christ would do. Christ has done the same thing, the writer to the Hebrew says. He's passed through the heavens. So just as you would not see the high priest go into the tent, we do not see Christ, the true high priest, who is now ascended into heaven, as we looked at in Acts 1. And he is in the true tabernacle, and he has offered himself before the Father. And the Father has accepted him as a sacrifice for the people. And so we have this assurance that just as uh, uh, Christ has been accepted by the Father, uh, in, like the high priest, uh, we have that acceptance as well because we are part uh, of him, joined to him in union by the Holy Spirit. So what does he do there? What's he doing? 
Um, first of all, he pleads our cause in heaven in the presence of the Father. Okay, and you see the passages that it, it references there, particularly Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 34. In chapter 8, uh, Paul refers to Christ as our intercessor, and this should bring us great comfort, great comfort. We have two intercessors. I love this passage. Yeah, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, Romans 8, verse 34, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Notice that's the last thing Paul says. So he goes through the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ. So we don't want to, we don't want to dismiss the ascension. I think for a lot of us, we just think of the ascension as a mode of transportation. Uh, Jesus flew off into the heavens in some weird way. Uh, but there, there's more to it than that. It's the fact that he is in the true tabernacle, and he is there interceding for us, just as the high priest would go into the most holy place and intercede on behalf of the people. All of that, the whole Old Testament, is fulfilled by Jesus Christ. That's really the point of the whole book of Hebrews. Um, if you boiled it down to one sentence, it's that. Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, especially the priesthood. So he's there praying for us. So, uh, and let that comfort you. You know, when we ask each other, you know, if you pray for me, pray for me. Yeah, that's good that we have people praying for us, and that's, that's encouraging. But, you know, oftentimes I know you want your pastor to pray for you, and that's good, but I'm no closer to God than you are. But there is one who is closer to God, Jesus, and he's interceding for you. And so let chapter 8, verse 34 comfort you. I'll still pray for you. But honestly, Jesus' prayers are better than mine because Jesus is better than me. And uh, he's interceding for you. And, uh, you know, it's easy to get frustrated with one another, right? Well, I don't feel like this person's doing enough for me. I don't feel like that person's doing enough for me. Jesus is doing everything for you. And he's interceding for you, and that's his promise. And he won't let you down. I'm going to let you down, and you'll let me down. But Jesus, he won't let you down. He's interceding for you. And that's uh, part of what his, his ascension means. Any questions on that so far? All right, good news. Very good news for us. Um, now he goes on. <clears throat> the uh, Heidelberg goes on. Where did I leave off? Uh, second, we have our own flesh in heaven, a guarantee that Christ, our head, will take us, his members, to himself in heaven. Now, what does that mean? What are we talking about there? Um, this is really great. Think about our text this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. and verse 16, Paul talks about the physical body of Christ and the physical blood of Christ that ascended into heaven. Then in verse 17, he talks about the mystical body of Christ, which is the church. And so oftentimes, Christ is referred to as the head, right? And the church as the body. Uh, Let's not be confused here. Christ has a real body. It's not that the church 
is the only body of Christ. Christ has a real body as surely as you have a real body. But we're also called, the church is called the body of Christ. And where is the head right now? In heaven. And where is the body? Yeah, I mean, there is the church that is glorified, but, uh, or not yet glorified, but rather triumphant. But there's the church militant that's here on earth. <clears throat> and we are many members. And Paul uses that analogy quite a lot, right? Each member has its own function. Everyone has their own gifts, abilities, talents that we're to use for the benefit of one another. We're not to just hoard our talents to ourselves. God has given those so that we give them away and use them for the benefit of uh, the communion of saints. But this means then that Christ, shorthand for Christ, or make it easier, there we go, Christ in heaven and us on earth, that we are joined and that we are one. And there's great mystery here. We are joined with Christ in heaven, who is the only glorified man, human, in the cosmos, and is indeed our Savior. And as we heard in the sermon today, it's from Christ, and, and who is physically glorified in a real body and blood, that we receive benefits uh, in this life as we even partake of the bread and the wine here on earth. So it's not just an object lesson. It's not just an empty ritual. If we think of the Lord's Supper that way, we've totally missed the point of the word communion. We commune, fellowship, participate, share in the body and blood of Christ who is in heaven. So the ascension speaks of this. And that means that we receive benefit. And that's what the catechism is getting at here. Uh, we have our own flesh in heaven. We're joined to that. A guarantee that Christ, our head, will take us, his members, to himself in heaven. He's not going to allow his body just to suffer on earth forever. There will come a day when, yeah, he will take us to himself, and then, as the rest of the scripture says, he will bring the, us to glorify this whole earth, and we will be glorified with him, having a body like unto his, living in a glorified universe, real flesh and blood, real uh, creation that we'll enjoy. Uh, no poisonous rattlesnakes. If they're rattlesnakes, they won't be, be able to hurt you uh, because there will be no fear. There will be no danger. There will be no death. There will be no crying, no, no pain, no frustration. There will be only joy and, and thanksgiving. And, uh, but the promise is that if Christ is in heaven now, he indeed will bring his people to, him, to himself. As he said, if I, it is to your advantage that I go away, that I ascend into heaven. Uh, for if I go, I go to prepare a place for you, and I will bring you to myself. Any questions on that, on, on, the, on the ascension? Yeah, Angela. Mysterious. Well, a mystic essentially is someone who's turning inward. And uh, the, the Lord's Supper doesn't cause you to turn inward. It just causes you to turn outward. It, it's set before you. As surely as you see it, 
it is, it, you know that Christ has given himself for you. The mystery, a mystery just means something that we cannot explain. Um, that's different than mysticism, you know, turning inward. Uh, a, a, a mystery is simply, it's not a contradiction, it's just something that, man, these things cannot be reconciled. And there's a union of Christ in heaven and the body on earth that is a great mystery. Just like there, the union of Christ's divine nature and human nature is a mystery. If anybody says, oh, I can explain that to you, that guy's a fool. A fool. Capital F, fool. Bold case, underlined. If anybody says, oh, I can explain and rationalize the Trinity to you, talk to the palm. Face ain't listening. You know, you go read the creeds. Away. You know, go, go grow up. Lock, lock him up in a cage and hand him the early fathers until he grows up. Uh, because th- those are mysteries that we cannot explain. And uh, that person's proud and warped if they think that they can just explain all of those things. We can't explain this either. We can't explain the mechanics of it. That's what we mean by it. it's, a, it's a mystery. So the, the union of Father, Son, Holy Spirit in one God, great mystery. Union of, of Christ's divine and human nature, great mystery. Union of Christ in heaven and the body on earth, great mystery. However, we're compelled to believe those things that God has revealed. A mystic is somebody who is uh, simply turning inward and uh, looking for God inside here rather than in the outward means that he has revealed. That makes sense. And there's a lot of that stuff today. A whole lot of it. And flee from that stuff I would, be, would be my recommendation. Keep, stick to the means that God has provided. His word and his sacraments. That's there where he's promised to bless us. And, you know, again, and our emotions are fickle things. You know, it's usually our, our emotions that we're looking for some kind of a high or some kind of a feeling or some kind of experience. Uh, and when we're bored or we feel dry, um, we, we, um, we tend to disparage the ordinary means that God has provided. Um, but, you know, emotional up and downs and periods of dryness is normal in the Christian life. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with the songs you sing at church or there's something wrong with the sermons the pastor's preaching or there's something wrong with my Bible translation. It just means there's something wrong with me. I'm part of a fallen world and I go through periods like this. It doesn't mean that God is failing me through the means that he has promised to bless. I need to come back again and again in faith and say, um, this is what Jesus provided. So, I mean, For me, that's, that is... Tremendous to think every time, every Sunday when we take the Lord's Supper, yeah, there's all this stuff going on that I can't explain. But, but when Christ walked the earth, he appointed this. And here we are once again doing it. I'll take that any day over um, something that man has conjured up to try to uh, make me feel really great, which is a form of mysticism. So. Other questions? So he pleads our cause in heaven, in the presence of the Father, intercessor, Romans 8. Uh, we have our own flesh in heaven, a guarantee that Christ, our head, will take us, his, member, his members to himself in heaven. We're joined, united as one. Okay? He cannot be the only one who's going to be resurrected. The rest will be resurrected too. And we wait for that day. It's on the last day. And then third... 
He sends his spirit to us on earth as a further guarantee. By the spirit's power, we make the goal of our lives not earthly things, but the things above where Christ is uh, sitting at God's right hand. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't care about things on earth. That's not what Paul's saying. You know, um, don't care about anything on earth, you know. Uh, that's not what he's saying. We're, we're called to love our neighbor, and that means that we're to, we're to live out our lives as Christians to the glory of God and to the benefit of our neighbor, which means that we are active in the world and active in society and uh, doing all we can to be a blessing in the earth uh, and, and in the world and in our communities. Um, but it means that our our hope is not in the things of this world. And uh, when we come to worship on Sunday, we're doing something quite different than, you know, gathering together uh, to see a sporting event. Um, I like seeing a good sporting event. Um, the Padres, by, I would almost, I would, I'm, I am, I am tempted to use the word miracle. I scored eight runs in one inning against the San Francisco Giants last night. Now there's a mystery for you. Uh, but, you know, I love sporting events, but, I mean, they're just temporal things. Do they, they can bring glory to God in some way, but they're just temporal things. We have our mindset on heaven, when we, when, and when we gather together on the Lord's day, we are doing something totally different than it's done in the world. And we're reminded that our head is in, is in heaven, and that we're the body on earth, that our prophet, priest, and king has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And so, yeah, Paul says in Colossians 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father, ascension. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. In other words, not only on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. This is the goal, is to be with him on a resurrected earth. Everything else in this life is just kind of window dressing. That's the goal. Uh, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And then that's the basis he has for going on in chapter 3 of Colossians, saying, put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you. You know, all the sinful tendencies that we struggle with, and put on, as God's chosen ones, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, all that stuff that does not come naturally to us as fallen people. Um, we're to live to the glory of God. And, uh, and knowing that this is where our hope is, ultimately, where Christ is now. And he has sent the Spirit into our hearts that, that gives us this desire for those things, a further guarantee. Uh, I like to think of it you know, as the age to come Christ is there now in the age to come in, in consummate glory. And he, has the, you know, the, and he sent the Spirit into our hearts. He has this fishing pole and he's cast out his lime and he's hooked you. And now he's reeling you in, the church, to be with him in the age to come. And, uh, and we, it, we're reminded that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. When we, when we are convicted of our sin and when we, when we repent of our sin, we find ourselves confessing our sin again. That's evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in you, of your ascended Lord who sent the Spirit into your heart, who's poured out His Spirit upon the church. Uh, when the church is involved in 
evangelism, missions, church planting. Okay, the fact that we would do crazy things like be involved in church planting even across the globe. That's evidence that the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon the church. Uh, that we're not just hoarding our gifts to ourselves uh, like, like selfish pagans, but that we, we are saying freely we have received, freely we give. Um, that's evidence that Christ is in heaven and his body is on earth, active, working in the world. Uh, and so we make our lives, as it says, by the Spirit's power, we make the goal of our lives, not earthly things, but the things above where Christ is, sitting at God's right hand. Any questions on that? We be, yeah, there's two, there's two stages to your resurrection. Uh, because clearly you have not been physically raised, Bob. That's, yeah. <laughs> uh, but there's the, yeah, there is the, the uh, resurrection of the soul. Because remember, your, your body and soul. There's the resurrection of the soul, um, and yet it still has the pollution, the, the remnants of sin and the old man. But there is this newness, this new disposition. Not a new personality, but a new disposition inclined toward heavenly things, inclined to Christ in, in, that is heavenly-minded now, which is, why, again, why we're at church, why we come to the Lord's Supper, why we, you know, those things seem foolish to the world, right? Um, but that resurrection has happened, and, there's, and, and, by, and positionally, you are in Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places, okay, it, positionally, by virtue of your union with him, right, and uh, yet you're awaiting the, the redemption of the body, the redemption of the body, the completion of your salvation. Christ has completed the work, but the day when our salvation will be fully applied to us, when you get the full installment, the final installment, is on the last day at the resurrection. You know, not even upon death do you have the, the full installment. You have a soul that is free from sin, that is with Christ in heaven, but a body that is still awaiting the resurrection on the last day. And so, yeah, there's those two stages. Raised now in Christ positionally, but raised physically, gloriously on the last day. Body and soul coming back together again. Because Christ has redeemed both, body and soul. He's very interested, and unlike Zwingli, he's very interested in matter. C.S. Lewis said, God loves matter. He invented it. And he, he's the one that invented the body and invented the earth. And he's not just going to do away with these things uh, and we're going to live on some cloud. Um, no, he's, he, he's redeemed them in Christ. We look forward to that day. So we set our minds on things above until then. And it takes faith, doesn't it? Because, you know, I mean, Christ isn't here on earth. And people say, well, if this is true, how come there's all these problems in the world? You know, how come there's evil? Which is interesting when people say that. Because if there's evil in the world, what does that presuppose? Good. There's good. It amazes me how people overlook that. What about the problem of evil? You realize what you're asking. You're presupposing there's a good God. Yeah. So what are you saying? That he's good but powerless? Or, well, let's rephrase your question. And uh, so, yeah. Other questions? On ascension. Yeah. Is there an expansion of the things above? Um, so, if there's part of the question, we make the goals of our lives, not 
Yeah. What does that look like? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, I mean, first of all, it's, it's Christ as he is fully revealed in the scriptures, right? I mean, when, when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, you know, with the two disciples, and he begins with Moses explaining all the things in the Old Testament that pertain to him, things above, you know. So when we come and we hear uh, Christ, you know, preach from the Old Testament, the way the apostles did it in Acts, we're setting our minds on things above. If we're only looking for just practical sermons, tidbits on how to be a better whatever, that's really not setting our minds on things above. Because you can get that apart from Christianity. You don't need Christianity for that. You know, I'm involved with Little League Baseball, and there's all kinds of good virtues. Courage, character, loyalty, the three virtues of Little League Baseball. But those aren't necessarily things that are above. You know, those, uh, those are just, uh, you know, moral values that we all get. As Immanuel Kant said, you know, it's the... Um, the two things that we can be assured of is, you know, the star is above and the, this moral law within. And, uh, and then you get into mysticism of some sort. Paul, though, fleshes that out more. Not only is it to know all about Christ and, and as he's presented in, in redemptive history, but in Colossians 3, right after he says, set your mind on things above, he says, put to death therefore. So here's what being heavenly minded looks like. Um, put off sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in them. Uh, now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So in other words, seeking to put off vice is not just, hey, I'm trying to be a good person but rather I'm being renewed in the image of the one who has ascended into heaven. And then put on as God's chosen ones, again, not just as a moral principle, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. There's heavenly mindedness for you. Because in, in the world's virtue, in the world's... Uh, moral law that they understand, um, forgiveness and grace and mercy just don't really have a place. You know, the world is no friend of grace. It's a, it's a friend of um, do what's right, do what's fair, in other words, law. But Paul says here, no, to be heavenly minded means to be compassionate, forgiving each other. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And here it is, really summed up, heavenly mindedness. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing the word of God into your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So verses 5 through 17 what it's meant to be heavenly minded. And we need to put that into practice. We need to put that into practice. That's what it means, really, to be filled with the word of God and to, and to put off the old and to put on the new. That's what it's going to look like in, in our lives. Why? Because we're joined to the one who has ascended into heaven, who feeds us with his own body, his physical body and blood, the benefits of his crucified body and shed blood every Lord's day. You're being made new. 
and which is why you know we're convicted of our sins of these things, which the you know the um, the unbeliever doesn't have that. The unbeliever doesn't have that. The unbeliever might think of yeah, I need to have positive thoughts, not negative thoughts. Um, I, mean, I run into this a lot with uh, in you know in the baseball world. You know, belief is good as a virtue. Not belief in anything particular, but just, you know, belief in yourself and have faith that in itself is considered a virtue. Um, The the world has no category for repentance, renewal, uh, being shaped into the image of Christ and uh, seeking to live to the glory of God, which is what it means to make the goal of our lives heavenly things. Not, not earthly things. And, and knowing, loved ones, that the goal, the goal is not, finally, we got America to look the way I want it to look. That's not the goal. The goal is to be with Christ in the age to come. The living hope is the appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, uh, Titus 2.13. That's a living hope. Anything less than that is a dead hope. A dead hope. It doesn't mean that we don't seek to make our communities better and to uh, do what we can you know, to love our neighbor. Absolutely, we do it to the glory of God. But until sin is eradicated from the human heart, it'll always be imperfect. It'll always be imperfect. And we can turn just like that, as we did 25 years ago in 1992, to what we saw in the L.A. riots. And going back and watching all the documentaries of that, and some of you remember that, you know, some of you were living uh, uh, close to that, and uh, pretty, pretty gross how quickly we can just, you know, uh, turn into basically animals against one another, and, and redemptive history is filled with that. Our hope is to be with Christ in the new heavens and new earth, and so we set our minds on earthly, on heavenly things. And seek to live as pilgrims with hope. And, and, the, and the truth is, I really believe in, in what many have said. Those who, throughout church history, who have been the most heavenly minded, have actually been the most earthly good. Those who, who, uh, who set their minds on things above and are filled with a, a hope in the, the consummation and are filled with joy in the salvation of our Lord, are actually those who do the most earthly good. They're the ones who are actually with compassionate hearts, actually changing things a little bit in society out of, a, out of a love for our Lord, viewing people as made in the image of God. And when you go back and you look, you know, who are the ones that, that have, you know, look at what Christians have done, the good that Christians have done. There's been a lot of bad, but look at the good, uh, the people that have, you know, built hospitals and, and founded orphanages and and uh, sought to cure diseases. And many of them have been people with a great heavenly hope. And uh, it's because of our love for, for Christ and what he's done for us uh, that we seek to be good to our neighbors as we await uh, the great appearing of our, of our God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And so set your mind on, on things above. Read the scriptures. Meditate upon them. Read them over and over and over again. And come to worship, and receive the supper, and walk in humility, uh, do justice, uh, and love mercy. These are the things that God wants from us, and what it means to, to be heavenly minded.
Any other questions on ascension? Yeah, ready. It's Colossians 3. Colossians 3. You're being heavenly minded by asking. It's good. Being heavenly minded by asking. Know where to find stuff in the Word of God. You're being heavenly minded that way. Don't, it's not just the pastor's job. Be heavenly minded. Know where to find stuff in the Word of God. Meditate upon it. Know it. It's so easy. If we went around this room, we, are, we, we all have facts stored away in the file cabinets of our minds. Um, let's fill those file cabinets with the Word of God. You know, anytime I get around with guys and start talking, you know, baseball and it's fun. See how fluent guys are, and uh, and then you know they, the subject changes to you know power tools or whatever, and then I'm not so fluent, or or cars, and I'm not, I'm not fluent at all uh, about engines anyway. Um, but the point is, we all have these facts of stuff memorized, but let's let's meditate upon Scripture and know it, uh, because there's really nothing more wonderful that we've been given in this world. All right, real quick, we just got a couple minutes here uh, before we release the hounds. Um, Lord's Day 19. Let's, let's start up there. So, question 50. Why the next words and sits at the right hand of God? Christ ascended to heaven there to show that he is head of his church and that the Father rules all things through him. All right, so at the right hand... You know, throughout uh, the ancient world has been understood as uh, a place of authority and position. And Christ has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Remember, he said that in Matthew 28, which is the most encouraging thing uh, when we think about the Great Commission. The Great Commission is not just go and make disciples of all nations. The, The Great Commission starts with all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's awesome. He has more authority than any world ruler, world, world leader, uh, any parliament or congress or military uh, or economic power. Uh, Christ has more authority than that. The whole universe belongs to him. And uh, he's at the right hand ruling and reigning as the cosmic ruler of all creation. How, 51, how does this glory of Christ, our head, benefit us? First, through his Holy Spirit, he pours out his gifts from heaven upon us, his members. Second, by his power, he defends us and keeps us safe from all enemies. And it's true. I mean, the fact that the church is still alive in the world, it's incredible. It has outlasted all other kingdoms. It outlasted the Roman Empire. It, uh, it will outlast uh, the United States of America. It'll outlast everything. It'll still be here. Um, if North Korea hurls a nuke over and, uh, and you know, or a bunch of nukes and we don't get them all and blow them all out of the sky over the Pacific and one takes out all of California, the kingdom of God still is here. It's not going away. If all the United States falls, the kingdom of God is still here. And uh, that can be hard for Christians to grasp in time. There was a, there was a book once written uh, about this. People who confused 
the city of God with the city of man. Uh, when, uh, when Rome fell, people were freaking out. People like Jerome were saying, this is the end. This is the end of Christianity. And a guy named Augustine wrote a book called The City of God saying, it doesn't matter even if the glory of Rome falls. Uh, the, the kingdom of God, which is manifest in the gathering of Christ's people, whom he loves, whom the, the king over the universe still is joined to always and feeds with his word and sacrament as they gather together every Lord's Day. What kingdom has been assembled on the first day of every week around the globe for 2,000 years? That's pretty serious. And uh, we have to remember that it will remain. It will remain. And we don't want to confuse the, uh, the, the, the city of God with the city of man in that way, as, as Augustine taught us. Uh, 52, how does, this is really good. How does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? My distress and persecution, I turn my eyes to the heavens and confidently await as judge the very one who has already stood trial in my place before God and so has removed the whole curse from me. All his enemies and mine he will condemn to everlasting punishment, but me and all his chosen ones he will take along with him into the joy of the glory of heaven. So every time we pray, thy kingdom come, you're praying that the gap between what is already and what is not yet will close. You're praying for the return of Christ. Now, the kingdom... It, it continues to be manifest in this world, in the church, and as it gathers together. And we need to spread that kingdom throughout the world. And we need to plant churches and evangelize. We've got work to do. We've had work to do for the last 2,000 years in, in making disciples. That's the, the Great Commission. But our hope is the return of Christ. And we, we cry out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And, uh, it, and it should comfort us to know that he's going to put an, evil, an end to evil one day. And, uh, you know, if you talk to Christians, um, like the theologian uh, uh, Miroslav Wolf, uh, who was a Croatian and, and lived through all of the, the ethnic cleansing in Croatia, uh, you know, he points out how it, it's this ultimately that gives the Christian hope. A Christian, who has, a Christian who has seen, you know, their house burned down, their daughters raped, their sons killed, you know, the land is soaked in blood. Uh, you've lost all faith in the dignity of humanity because you've lived through absolute hell. The one thing that continues to give you the strength to forgive others and to not retaliate to everyone with violence is to know that vengeance belongs to the Lord and he will bring a sword and he will come to judge the living and the dead. And uh, that, that is something that we need to remember, loved ones. Um, you know, that the Lord is ultimately the judge. And, uh, and, and it brings us great comfort to know that he's not going to allow evil to continue forever. That he has appointed a day when it will be brought to an end. And, uh, you know, and until that day, yeah, we need to protect life and liberty and, and seek to do all we can to, uh, you know, benefit our neighbor and, uh, and increase you know, the welfare of, of mankind. But 
Uh, it's Christ, ultimately, who's going to put an end to this present evil age. And when we pray, thy kingdom come, uh, we are praying, uh, come Lord Jesus, come to judge the living and the dead. And that day will come. It will come. And he's given us little glimpses and previews of that day. Little movie trailers. The flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, invasion and conquest of Canaan, then the Assyrian invasion to take away northern Israel, Babylonian invasion, the decimation of the temple in AD 70. All those are little intrusions into history uh, of God's uh, consummate ethic in which he will put evil away forever. And we long for that day. And so we say, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that we live in a world where there is hope in Christ, the one who has ascended into heaven and is seated at your right hand. We look to him. We long for his return. We thank you for him. We long to see him face to face and to live in a world free from evil, from pain, from suffering and death. Lord, help us until that day to be heavenly minded, to set our minds on things above, to put off the old and to put on the new, to live as new creations in this world. Help us to be a blessing to society, to do good for our neighbor, and to speak well of our King and the good news, the gospel. And use us, we pray, to make disciples and to plant churches throughout the world. For this we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen.